Well, we've been working our way through the book of Ephesians, and as we talked about, the book is divided into two halves perfectly, two halves of three chapters, and the, the first three are all about who we are in Christ, our identity as children of God, and the back half, chapters four through six, are all about what it means to live out this identity. They're all about what it means to live out this identity. So we're in chapter five and we're gonna start in verse eight. We're in the back half of Ephesians looking at what it means to walk out the Christian life. Verse eight says this, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. This is who you were, this is who you are. You were dead. Now you're alive. He doesn't say you were in darkness. He says you were darkness. And he doesn't say you're now in the light. He says you now are light. Therefore, because of that, in light of this glorious truth, Scripture says walk as children of light. Walk as children of light. You've been made a child of God. You've been adopted into his family. So behave and live and act like a child of God because that is who you are. It is who you are. You don't act like one so that you can become one. You behave like one because you are one. It is who you are. Verse nine, he says, for the fruit of the spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. What is the fruit of the spirit? If anybody grew up in church, they usually burst into song at this point. Please don't do that. But the fruit of the spirit, if you don't know, is most well known from Galatians 5, 22 and 23, which says the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And most scholars agree that, that what was actually being conveyed by Paul was the idea that the fruit of the Spirit is love, and all the other words that follow the word love should actually be in parentheses. So the fruit of the Spirit is love, and then all those other terms are a description of what love looks like. So the fruit of the Spirit is love. What does love look like? It looks like joy, it's peace, it's, it's long-suffering, it's patience, it's kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. That's why it's fruit used in the singular right there. And these are all ways that that plays out. And this is, this is so, so central to the Christian life that you've gotta understand this. If you wanna walk out the Christian life without frustration, you wanna be effective. God has designed a specific progression of walking out the Christian life using the Holy Spirit. And it goes like this. First, this is on your outline, we receive salvation. First, we receive salvation. Jesus becomes our Savior and our Lord. When we are saved, we receive the Holy Spirit. We read about that in Ephesians 1. He's a, he's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, guaranteeing that we are gonna spend eternity with Christ. We receive that guarantee at the moment of our salvation. Holy Spirit takes up residence inside of us. And the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives begins to cause change. It begins to cause change. All on his own, the Holy Spirit begins to reveal what is good and what is evil, what will bring life and what will bring death, what will bring freedom and what will bring bondage. The Holy Spirit encourages us. He convicts us in the areas we need to change. And he gives us an appetite for the things of God rather than the things of this world. And those changes driven by the Holy Spirit produce what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit, which is love. Joy, peace, all of those good things. And in Ephesians 5, 9, we see the fruit also described as everything that is goodness, that is righteousness, and that is truth. 
And the fruit of the Spirit is just that. It is a natural byproduct of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The fruit of the Spirit is a natural byproduct. You don't have to strain to produce those things in your life. The Bible makes it clear that your life will begin producing those things naturally. A tree doesn't, doesn't strain to produce fruit. It doesn't think about it, focus all its energy on it. What a tree actually focuses on is soaking up nutrients, getting water, getting sunlight, getting fed, because it knows that if it does those things, the natural byproduct of a healthy tree is fruit. It's a very, very natural thing. So when you look at your life and you don't see those things, you don't see yourself growing in those areas. And I want to emphasize growing because it's easy to look at those descriptions of the Holy Spirit and just say, it doesn't sound anything like me. But better to phrase it this way. Are those things on the increase in your life or are those things on the decrease in your life? You might be at the very, very early stages of bearing fruit. You can't even tell what the fruit's going to be but it's growing, it's increasing. But if it's not increasing in your life, it means something. It means the Holy Spirit is not leading your life. He's not feeding you. He's not filling you up on a regular basis. And that means one of two things. It means you're not saved. Holy Spirit was never present in your life. Or it means you are saved, but you're just not letting the Holy Spirit lead your life. And if it's the second thing, I can tell you this. If if you're not producing fruit in your life, if it's not increasing, it's not rocket science. It just means you're not feeding yourself spiritually the way that you need to be. Very, very simple. We always wanna look for the complex answer you know, of what's going on, but it's very simple. You're not getting the spiritual equivalent of sunlight. You're not getting the spiritual equivalent of water. And so you're not growing, you're not healthy. Your relationship with the Lord is, is probably distant. It's probably been a while since you talked with him on a regular basis in prayer. It's probably been a while since you soaked up some of the word. It's probably been a while since you had some good Christian fellowship that built you up and left you feeling encouraged. It's probably been a while since you worshiped God and just enjoyed his presence. When we're, when we're distant from God, when we, we defy the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives, what we're really saying is, I'll, I'll take the keys, Lord. I'm gonna drive for a while. I'm good. I'm going to drive for a while. When the Holy Spirit is not allowed to be in charge, there will be no fruit. There'll be no fruit because it's the fruit of the Spirit. Have you ever noticed that the fruit you produce on your own is considerably less good? Some people are really excited about this teaching. Hallelujah. Have you ever noticed that the, uh, the fruit that you produce on your own is considerably less good than the fruit of the Spirit? You're producing fruit all the time, but it might not be the fruit of the Spirit. Without the Spirit, we produce a great harvest, a great harvest of, of selfishness and anger and greed and bitterness and envy. Let me tell you, I'm not really looking this morning to advertise what the fruit of Jeff is. Not really looking to do that. Not really looking to talk about that. But understand this, only the Holy Spirit can produce the fruit of the Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And if you try and produce the fruit of the Spirit, you'll fail. Your Christian walk will become legalistic and dead and religious. Because it won't be natural. You'll be straining to produce it. It's essentially manufacturing something fake. Because it's not a natural byproduct. It's not a natural byproduct. So if the fruit of the Spirit isn't in your life, get back to the basics. Daily time in the Word. Daily time in prayer, conversation with God. Time in worship talking to God throughout the day, 
being obedient to what he asks you to do. It's get full of the Holy Spirit again. And those things are powerful because they're not legalistic things. It's not like check the box, but those are all things that we can do that convey to the Holy Spirit, I want you to lead my life. I want you to be the driving force in my life. 1 John 4, 8 says this, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God is love. If the Holy Spirit's not producing the fruit of love in our lives, as defined by God's word, then scripture says we don't know God. We don't even know him. We don't even know him. If there's no love as the driving force in our life, God says you don't know me. You don't even know me anymore for some of us. God chose this fruit, love, as the defining characteristic for Christians and for Christianity, the mark of his people. God chose love as the mark of his people. He didn't choose a fish bumper sticker or a special Christian bracelet. He chose love as the defining mark of his people. And and I think the reason for this is that love is something you cannot fake over a sustained period of time. Anybody ever tried? I made it like eight hours one time pretending to love somebody, you know, and then I was like, I just got to tell you, you're driving me crazy. I can't pretend, I can't pretend anymore. But real love rooted in Christ is, is unfakeable over the long haul. You just can't do it. No, I'm not talking about you, Wes. Just <laughs> it is unsustainable over the long haul to fake it. Completely unsustainable. So God says, this is how you'll know. This is how you'll know who loves me, who knows me, who has this fruit, who has the fruit of the Spirit in their life on a consistent basis. That's, that's how you'll know. Jesus says it, it doesn't matter how many big words they know, how much of the Bible they know in Greek or Hebrew, is their love, is their love. And there's people who know all about God, but there's no love, there's no love. God says you might know about me, but you don't know me, you don't know me. Because those who know me are full of love, the defining evidence of being a believer. In verse 10, Paul says, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And notice that, that Paul connects walking as children of light with finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. He, he connects the two. In other words, if your heart's desire is to walk with Christ, then your heart's desire must also be to seek out how God wants you to live. Let's say it again. If your heart's desire is to walk with Christ, then your heart's desire must also be to seek out how God wants you to live. Yeah, of course I want to live in the light. Of, of, of course I want to live in freedom, in the blessings of knowing my maker. Okay, well, here's how he wants you to live. La, 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 la. What? What? I said, here's how he wants you to live. La, 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 la. I believe that this attitude of the heart is the dividing line between those who are disciples of Christ and those who are not. It's the dividing line between those who are disciples and those who are not. The the disciple is so overwhelmed by what Jesus has done for them. The forgiveness of sins, freedom from the bondage of sin eternal life, the the eternal presence of the Holy Spirit in this life. They're so overwhelmed that the disciples' heart is, Lord, is there anything I can do for you? They understand that they can never pay God back, 
But when you understand you can never pay somebody back, a true attitude of gratitude isn't to say, so I guess I'll just do nothing. True attitude is to say, I know I can never pay this debt back, but is there anything I can do for you? Anything I can do for you out of gratitude. That's the heart of the disciple. Their response is rooted in gratitude. And because they're grateful, they actually seek out what the will of the Father is. They want to know, How do you, what do you want me to do? You've saved my life. What do you want me to do with it? When a disciple learns something new that the Lord wants them to do from his word, they immediately obey. They immediately obey. I didn't say they get it right. You might fail, you might mess up, but the heart's desire is I want to be obedient to the Lord. Immediately, there's that desire there in the heart of the disciple. When someone's not a disciple, they might dig the salvation thing. So saved from eternity in hell? Sounds good to me. So they might dig that part. But they're not really interested in how God wants them to live, and they don't really seek it out. When they're in church and the pastor's preaching on an area they don't want to change in, the person who's not a disciple thinks, only got to make it through 40 more minutes, and then I can forget about this. I can just forget about this and go on with my life. They know God's calling is, is to serve them with their lives, but they don't want to hear it. They just tune it out when God's word or a friend or a pastor speaks to them about serving. They're like, yeah, that's great. People should do that. Awesome. They tune it out when they discover God wants them to honor their spouse above themselves. And they say, ah, that's, that's, that's great. I, I know somebody else who needs to hear that. They tune it out when God says, forgive, forgive. And I'm not saying a disciple gets all this stuff right. I'm saying a disciple desires to get all this stuff right. That's the heart of a disciple. Person who's not a disciple might say, dang it, I, I can't believe the pastor's preaching on money. Why did I have to come to church today? But the disciple's attitude is, is Lord, thank you for showing me how you want me to live. Thank you for showing me how I can honor you in this area of my life. That's the attitude of a disciple. The disciple might say that, that sounds impossible, Lord, but I know you're calling me to do it, so I know your spirit will help me do it. Help me be obedient to you, God. I wanna honor you. The person who's not a disciple might say, that sounds impossible, and I don't wanna do it, so I won't. Uh, are you getting that, it, that it's not about success or failure? I fail all the time. I'm really good at it. It's about the attitude of your heart. It's about the attitude of your heart. If we're gonna walk with Jesus, we have to ask ourselves on a regular basis out of gratitude toward him, is there anything in my life that I know God wants me to do, but I'm not doing it? Because the disciple understands the heart of that question is, is there any way that I can be honoring God with my life that I'm not? And it's also about asking the question, is there anything in my life that I know God doesn't want me doing, but I am. Because the heart of that question is, is there anything in my life that's dishonoring to God? I don't want to dishonor God. That's the heart. It's not about do's and don'ts. It's about the attitude of the heart. And if we love Jesus, we'll actively seek out what is acceptable to the Lord. What is acceptable to the Lord. In this area, the heart of a disciple understands that, that ignorance isn't an excuse. If you don't know how God wants you to live in an area of your life, the disciple says, I, I need to know. I gotta find somebody who can show me what God's word says. I gotta, I gotta find somebody who can lead me to the will of God in his word. I gotta find out. 
The person who's not a disciple says, you know, I don't know how God wants me to live in this area, and I kind of like it that way, because if I don't know, then I'm not responsible to live that way. So, uh, yeah, I'm good. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But a disciple seeks out what is acceptable to the Lord in relationships, in finances, in managing our time, in managing our talents, in managing our families and our marriages. We'll seek it out. That's the heart of a disciple. And if you don't know, seek it out in this word. Seek it out. In Romans 12.1, Paul writes this instruction. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. And I love this line, which is your reasonable service. Paul says that giving our entire lives, literally viewing ourselves as living sacrifices, so, so viewing ourselves as climbing up on the altar saying, God, my whole life, my whole existence, my whole being is a sacrifice for you. What do you want to do with it? Paul says that extreme radical gratitude and attitude of the heart, he says that's reasonable. That's reasonable. And the word reasonable literally just means rational in this context. Paul doesn't say Living, viewing your whole life as a sacrifice to God, viewing yourself as not even belonging to yourself. Paul doesn't say, that's the height of Christianity. That puts you in the top 1%. That is the ultimate pinnacle of the faith. Paul says, no, that's reasonable. That's reasonable. That's rational. That's logical. Yeah, that sounds about right. That's what Paul says. It sounds about right is what Paul says. It's an incredible, incredible statement. There, there, there are times, truthfully, when I feel like I deserve a medal for the most simple things, you know, for, for apologizing to my wife. Was it your fault? Yeah, but still, I apologized. I apologized. And there, there are times when I feel really good about myself because, because I, I do tithe. We give 10% of our income to the Lord. Doesn't, doesn't the Bible say you're supposed to do that? Yeah, but but I'm like actually doing it, you know? And, and our heavenly father is just that. He, he's loving and he's affirming. And when we trust him, he says, I'm so proud of you, you're, you're doing great. But Paul is the reality check. Paul is the one who says, hey, hey, just remember, 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 the greatest sacrifices you'll ever make for Jesus in your life can be described as your reasonable service to him your rational service, a logical way, an appropriate way to live. And what Paul is doing is he's not poo-pooing living for Jesus in a radical way. He's just trying to elevate in our minds our view of the cross and our view of what we've received in Jesus and in our salvation and in our eternity and in the Holy Spirit. Paul says, listen, that, that stuff is so amazing, it's so incredible that even the greatest sacrifice you could ever do is simply a reasonable response. It's a reasonable response. So Paul's saying, don't, don't sit there agonizing about, man, do I wanna be a radical Christian who's really all in? Paul says, how about, how about you shoot for being average? Because in our faith, being average is being all in. Paul says, that's really the, the only response. If you understand the cross, if you understand the cross. Paul says it's, it's reasonable to view yourself as a living sacrifice to God. Verse 11, he goes on and he says, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works 
of darkness. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Last week we talked about sexual immorality and Paul saying, hey, that shouldn't even be named among you as believers. Shouldn't even be named among you. And so people heard this because we, we talked last week about this too, that, that this is an issue in pretty much every church Paul planted because sexual immorality is not a special sin for one geographic area. It's an issue related to our flesh and our beings as people. So in every church, Paul sort of deals with this issue. And, and, and the Corinthian church had heard this and they had said, well, I guess we shouldn't associate with anybody who's sexually immoral. And so they were just trying to stay away from like everybody and freaking out as they walked down the streets like, ah, someone's going to touch me. How am I going to go grocery shopping? I'm pretty sure the checkout clerk is sexually immoral. I mean, what am, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And so Paul gives some really clear explanation, and I want to let Paul speak for himself. And this is what he says to the church in Corinth in, in 1 Corinthians 5. He clarifies what he's saying. And he says it so well. Paul says this. He says, I wrote to you in my epistle, 1 Corinthians not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. I love this. Paul's like actually being humorous. He says, since then you would need to go out of the world. He's like, if I told you that you could never associate with anybody who does these things, you'd have to like go hibernate. You'd have to be a hermit in the middle of the desert to get away from all this stuff. And even then, you'd still have the problem of being with yourself. But he says, but now I've written to you not to keep company, and this is important, this is worth underlining, with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Paul clarifies here that he was not referring to non-believers. He's talking about believers inside the church. Paul is referring to people who claim to be Christians but are living an unrepentant and unashamedly sexually immoral lifestyle. Paul says, don't even, don't even eat with that person. Don't even eat with them. And the Bible's really clear about this. The Bible always says, listen, don't judge a non-believer for acting like a non-believer. Don't do that. Don't, don't ask them to behave like a believer when their spirit is not a believer. That's literally saying, hey, listen, I know you don't have a relationship with Jesus, but for my benefit, could you pretend that you do? Paul says that's what you're doing when you, when, when you expect a non-believer to behave like a believer. They're a non-believer. They're, they're not ruled by the spirit. They're ruled by their flesh. But Paul says for us as Christians, he says, listen, we're held to the standard of Christ. And when you become a Christian, you've agreed that Jesus is the example. And when it comes to judging and not judging, man, those are like the first verses everybody knows, right? There's people who've never even read the Bible, but they know all the verses about judge lest ye be judged. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Who am I to judge? Who are you to judge? What's interesting, the, the Bible paints a different picture. The Bible says those outside the church, he says, yeah, don't judge them. God judges them. Then they're none of your business. God says in the church, you should judge. 
you should. And most Christians have no idea that the Bible even says this. No idea. It says you should judge. Now, now what, he's not talking about me coming up and saying, also uh, in the announcements this week, um, Steve's been looking at some things on the internet he shouldn't be. Just wanted to bring that to everybody's attention. And um, yeah, I think uh, Becky's been uh, flirting with a non-believer. So Becky, <clears throat> let's take care of that, okay? It's not what Paul is talking about. He's not talking about forming a special committee, you know, and saying, I'm, uh, I'm gonna ask you all to put the software on your computer. It'll all come back to me so I can see what you're all looking at and we'll just take care of business. Paul, Paul's not talking about that at all. But he's saying don't have anything, don't have anything to do with someone who claims to be a believer and there's no fruit in their life. There's no fruit in their life. Because the truth is sexual immorality is rooted in the complete opposite of love. Sexual immorality is rooted in the love of self. It's rooted in a greed to use another person for your benefit at their expense. It's the complete opposite. And so Paul says, listen, in the family of God, Someone who's a believer, who's sexually immoral, they're sleeping with their boyfriend or girlfriend, they're not ashamed of it. They're living with them, they're, they're a believer, they know better, they don't care. Guy who's addicted to internet porn, he knows other guys know, and he's like, ah, it's just my cross to bear. He says people who, Christians who excuse their sexually immoral sin, who are not repentant, who know better, who are believers, who are believers, Paul says, listen, don't have anything to even do with those people. Don't have anything to do with them. You're not showing them love by pretending that what they're doing is okay. Have nothing to do with them. Paul's really, really, really clear about this. Really clear about this. That when you become a believer, you're agreeing that Jesus Christ is the standard of your life. And I think it's even bigger than that. You're agreeing to take his name, Christian. And so what this is rooted in is Paul is saying, listen, you carry the name of Christ. So when you have a person who is carrying the name of Christ, who's representing Jesus, who's misrepresenting him, and when they're confronted about it, doesn't care, Paul says, that's not okay. That's not okay. Paul's very, very clear about this, and, and I think it's important to understand that the church today, I think, is rife with misplaced and misunderstood grace, a misunderstood application of grace, that we think grace is, listen, anybody can do whatever they want and we'll just pretend it's all good because that's love. Paul says, listen, when someone is on fire, it's not love to say, well, that's your choice and I respect your choice to burn yourself to death. Paul says, listen, this is bigger than them. They represent Jesus. As the body of Christ, as a church, the church represents Jesus. And so Paul's heart is rooted in the fact, he says, listen, you need to slap somebody upside the head sometime and say, listen, we represent Jesus to the outside world. We represent Jesus to the outside world. So represent Jesus. Represent him. Stop it. You know better. Paul's very, very serious, very, very black and white about this. And, and so why do, we, why do we stay silent? Let's take a look at this. In verse 11 it says, but rather expose them, for it is shameful to even speak of those things which are done by them in secret. And, and like I said, when Paul says expose them, he's not talking about like yell it out in church, you know, when a 
person is crying to you and confessing their sin, don't be like, I got a new sin. We got a 714 right here. He's not talking about that at all. He's, he's talking about two things. He's saying don't help conceal the sin of a believer by turning a blind eye to it. Don't aid them in covering it up. Don't aid them in covering it up. Don't stay silent. And, and here's what I think we miss all the time as believers. Sometimes our silence is the same as our approval. It's the same as our approval. And we're trying to be loving, but all they're really taking it as is, well, nobody said anything, so I guess, uh, I guess we all got our issues. Praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. And why do we stay silent? I think for most of us it's because we're afraid of being a hypocrite. I don't think we're even afraid of being accused of being a hypocrite. We're actually afraid of being a hypocrite. Being a hypocrite, you know? But here's the thing, we, we never agreed that I was the example when we came to Christ. I never agreed that you were the example when I became a Christian. We agreed that Jesus is the example, not us. Jesus is the example. And I'm not saying you're mistreating your wife, be more like me. I'm saying you're mistreating your wife, be more like Jesus. And when I need to hear that, you have the same permission to tell that to me. And I'm not gonna decide whether or not I wanna hear it based on who you are. I'm obligated to receive it based on who Jesus is and what his word is. We're missing the point. We're not the example. Jesus is the example. And here's how this plays out. This is a real situation I know. Family grows up in the church. Kids are in youth group. Dad just decides around midlife crisis level He's got the itch and wants to be with somebody else. Divorces his wife, leaves her. And nobody says anything in the whole church. And that guy's son will not step foot in a church again now. And the reason is not because his dad got a divorce. The reason is that his dad was an elder in the church and nobody in the church said anything to his dad, anything. And so he's left in the place now wondering, is this all a farce? Is this all just a show? Is this all just fake? Is this all just about feeling righteous and pretending that we're better than we are? And that kid now has a barrier between him and God because nobody in the church stepped up and said to his dad, hey, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? And he probably still would have gone ahead with it, but that kid would have had the memory of knowing that the church was fighting for what's right. And that if his dad had listened to the church, maybe his family would still be together. And that's how that plays out when, when um, this matters just profoundly, profoundly, profoundly. I think about situations all the time like young ladies in a church who are dating someone who's not a believer. This, this one always gets me too. You talk about a situation, you're on fire. You're on fire right now. You're heading towards disaster. And we say, listen, listen, I, I don't want to get all up in their business. I just want to respect their space and respect their decisions. So it's more respectful for us to do that and let it play out and let this situation happen where they fall more and more in love and they get married. And the whole time she's assuming that sooner or later this person's, they're, they're going to come to Jesus because I'm a Christian. 20 years later, 
it didn't work out that way. And she's at a woman's group every week crying her eyes out with other women who don't share the most important thing in their life in common with their spouse. She's crying her eyes out every week looking for support, thinking, I, I never thought this would happen. I just assumed you'd come to know Jesus. And nobody stood up and said, listen, what are you doing? The Bible says, what does light have in common with darkness? The Bible says, a believer with an unbeliever. The Bible says, do not be unequally yoked. If we say, listen, no, it's more loving and more respectful to just let it happen. And Paul says, That's, we're full of it, is what Paul says when we say that. He says, you're full of it. Stop being cowards and love each other enough to help each other walk in the light. It's not about judging, it's about loving somebody enough to have a hard conversation with them. You might not change their mind, but ultimately what they'll remember is that you love them enough to tell them. And if their life does go off the rails because they didn't take the advice of God's word, at least they'll know, hey, if I had followed God's word, my life would be better right now. And the word of God is still held, elevated in their life, their opinion of it. But this happens all the time, every day in church. And, and when my wife says, hey, hey, you can't be doing that. This is what the word of God says. Listen, my, my flesh hates it. It chafes at it. But my spirit is profoundly grateful, profoundly grateful. Because I'm being reminded that I'm under God's authority. I'm being reminded that I represent him. I represent him. And that we have agreed that he's the authority in our lives. He's the authority in our lives. Secondly, Paul tells us to expose the unfruitful works of darkness by not living that way ourselves. Last week we heard Paul say that sexual immorality shouldn't even be, be named among us. And that sounds so extreme, but what Paul is saying is he's saying, listen, when you live holy, when you live righteously for the glory of Jesus, the contrast is increased between your life and people who don't know Jesus. The contrast is increased between your life, your church, and everything outside the church. When people look at us and they see the exact same thing that they see in themselves, we're not succeeding. We're not being any type of example. We're not being any type of example. So Paul says, listen, don't even let sexual immorality be named among you. Because the goal here is not to have everyone who's not a believer think, wow, you guys are so cool. Paul says the goal is to have them realize you're different. You're different. And Paul says this is a way you can do that. You don't have to say, you don't have to judge them. Paul says you live holy. Don't judge them for not living holy, but you live holy. You live holy. And that dials up the contrast between those who are in Christ and those who are not Christ. And I was thinking about this and thinking even in the, in the context of church. None of us should be able to come to church or attend a church where we can walk in in defiance of God, knowing that we're resisting God in an area of our lives, and make it through the whole service feeling comfortable. I really don't believe any of us should be able to do that. I shouldn't be able to do that. And not because the pastor's up there condemning you, but because the word of God is speaking to you, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. And I really believe that if you can go to church and you're in defiance of God, you're resisting God, you can make it through the whole service without feeling any conviction from the Holy Spirit. There's only one explanation. Holy Spirit isn't there. That's the explanation. That's the explanation. 
And so it should be a little bit uncomfortable even for us when we're walking in sin. Paul is saying when we come together, it should be encouraging. But if we're not walking with the Lord, it should be convicting. And not because anybody's putting a finger in your chest, but just because there's such a contrast between how it means, what it means to live for Christ and how we're living. We should just feel like, oh man, I'm, I'm not doing this. What's going on in my life? I gotta deal with this. Paul says, dial up the contrast. The more we live and walk in the light of Jesus, the more the things of darkness are exposed because the contrast between the two becomes more extreme. And Paul reinforces this idea in verse 13. He says, but all things that are exposed, what he means there is all things that are corrected with loving intent, all the things that are, that are brought up by another believer going to you saying, hey, what, what's going on? All of those things that are exposed are made manifest. They're brought to visibility by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Jesus shines a light on the darkness in our lives so that we can see, so that we can perceive that we are in darkness, that we're in darkness. I don't know if you ever had the experience of thinking that you were good in one area of your life, and suddenly God speaks to you through his word, he speaks to you through his spirit, he speaks to you in a moment of worship, and suddenly you realize, whoa, God is not involved in that side of my life at all, at all. And what Jesus is doing is he's shining a light into your life, into a dark corner, to help you understand that it is a dark corner. Because a lot of the time we don't even know until he does that. And that's what Paul is talking about here. And this is true of our salvation, that when we were dead in our sins, the Father called out to us and said in verse 14, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. And this is true after we're saved. God goes to work in our lives, making us more like Jesus, and that process is called sanctification. It's, it's the process of the Holy Spirit shining a light into every corner of our lives. And he never stops doing that, because your heavenly Father's desire is that you and I would walk in freedom, would walk in freedom. And what freedom means is that there's no corner of your life that you're terrified of God discovering. There's no corner of your life that you try to pretend isn't there when you come to worship God. God says, I, I know everything in your life already. I already know it. You don't have any secrets from me. I already know. Not only that, but I've already dealt with it, is what God says. But now he says, I want you to deal with it. I want you to deal with it. I've dealt with it. I've forgiven you. Now you need to receive my forgiveness. You need to let me come into that part of your life and go to work, do what I do, which is bringing freedom. We've all got those dark areas in our lives. We've all had them or we're all dealing with them. But there's no reason for any of our lives to be marked by darkness in an area. There's no reason. Like we said earlier, being a disciple doesn't mean you nail it, doesn't mean you get it right but it means you begin to say, I wanna do that. I wanna live for God, I wanna live for his glory. God, I wanna see you bring freedom into this area of my life. So this is where it all comes together. This is, this is the application, what this actually looks like in our lives. And the first question is this, is, is your life producing the fruit of the Spirit? Is your life producing the fruit of the Spirit? Is it increasing in your life or is it decreasing in your life? Are you growing in those things? If it's decreasing in your life, 
This is what you need to do. You need to make an appointment with God tomorrow morning. Make an appointment with God. And I use the word appointment because even if you wake up and you feel groggy and you feel tired and it's early, view it as an appointment. I have an appointment with God. God is gonna be showing up. I better be there. I better be there. Make an appointment with God tomorrow morning. Start your day. Just go back and read Ephesians 1. Tuesday, read Ephesians 2. Wednesday, read Ephesians 3. Read your way through a chapter of Ephesians this week. Get the word of God in you. Ask God to bless your day. Share your burdens with him. See the fruit of the Spirit increase in your life as you get full of the Spirit again. So is your life producing the fruit of the Spirit? Second question is, who in your life has permission to keep you accountable? Who has that permission? Is there anybody that you've gone to and said, listen, listen, if you see anything in my life, you see anything in my life that's not honoring to God or is lacking in my life, let me know. You have my permission. Let me know. Who's that person? I'll share with you the the best accountability question I ever heard. I ever heard. And even when you hear it, you'll be like, oh, because it's that good, you actually don't want your accountability partner to know it. Best accountability question in the world that you can ask anybody else is, what's the question you're hoping I won't ask you? That's a great, great accountability question. Who in your life can ask you that? Who in your life can ask you that? Who is there in your life where you've said, listen, I care more about honoring God than I do about talking about my issues? Do you have that person in your life? Do you have that person in your life? And finally, is the light of Christ shining into your life in such a way this morning that you realize there's an area that God needs to do some work in? You didn't even realize that there was darkness there, but this morning, you can just sense, man, God is speaking, he's doing something. He's calling out to you, saying, let's go to work on this area. Bring it to me, bring it to me. As we take communion and worship after this, this is your opportunity as you take communion to just be reminded God has dealt with that. He's dealt with it, it's handled. Now he wants to help you deal with it. That's what he wants to do. He wants to help you receive that forgiveness, receive that freedom. So those are the three questions to think about. Is your life producing the fruit of the Spirit? If not, make an appointment with God tomorrow and start every day spending time with him. Read through Ephesians. Is there someone in your life who has permission to ask you the questions that you don't want them to? Is there someone in your life who has that permission? And is there an area of your life that you need to deal with, that God is calling you to deal with as we worship?